Welcome back to World War Now, everybody. I am your host, Conrad Franz, joined as always by Dmitry Kalyagin. We have a really big show for you this week. So much has gone on, even outside of the Russo-Ukrainian coup sphere, really. This is going to be a show covering so much stuff. So uh, be sure to, uh, well, I'll get that in a second, but Dmitry, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And yes, the world is in fact on fire, both physically, you know, spiritually, as well as, you know, now quite literally uh, international relations is all over the all over the board and we're seeing action all over Europe essentially all these um, different frictions and factions actually coming into into uh, into play and especially we're seeing a lot of big uh, political ideas such as immigration economics international relations everything is really coming to butt heads here in this uh, in this grand chess game that the elites are playing i guess using different nations and different peoples like put, putting them up against each other but there's a lot to speak about here and you know definitely a lot more than just the russia ukrainian war especially at this stage despite the exciting news that happened last weekend after our live stream you know which we'll definitely discuss here Oh yes, be sure to check out that live stream if you want to catch our like faces in the middle of when everything was going on. But we're going to get a little bit into Russia and Wagner in this episode, but it's not going to necessarily be the main focus. If you want to get our deep, intense analysis on that, we go for over an hour exclusively on that. On Ether Hour, that's going to be linked below. That's only on the Substack, so be sure to subscribe and go paid on there. It really helps us out. I think you're really going to like that episode. We don't hold back. We go into all the takes. We Nobody is safe, so be sure to enjoy that. But with all of that, Dimitri, you talked about flames. You talked about that. The main Those flames are going on in France. We see possibly new countries being formed in the Balkans once again. So this is just, there's just so much going on. We're going to get into the whole race war in France in a second, but let's start with what's going on in Bosnia and Herzegovina. According to Dodik, the head, Milorad Dodik, the head of Republika Srpska, which is the Serbian region of Bosnia and Herzegovina, it shares, you know, this kind of patchwork country with some Muslims and Catholics that is overseen by a European kind of steward, in this case, a man named Schmidt, uh, who's head of the OHR, which is kind of the office of overseeing affairs in Bosnia to make sure it's integrated as a perfectly Westphalian liberal state that embraces multiculturalism without tribalism and factionalism. Of course, we all know that that was never going to work. And so now what we see, of course, happening is Dodik has announced that the Supreme Court of Bosnia and Herzegovina, the highest court in the land, effectively has no jurisdiction over Republika Srpska. Their decisions won't be published and distributed or enforced, especially if they're deemed to go against the interests of Srpska. This led to a big reaction, but not as big of a reaction as one might expect from the central Bosnian authorities. They said they condemned it and all of that, but they didn't even threaten military action, which shows that most likely Dodik is going to be able to get away with this. And Dodik you know, in response to uh, the West and some of the European uh, overseers of the Bosnia project, he said that Srpska is its own country, whether you like it or not, and we're going to do our own thing. So in the eyes of the people on the ground there, we, we have a new nation on our hands here. And we've talked about it before, how ultimately Srpska is eventually going to want to join Serbia, but Serbia itself is already so tied up in the whole Kosovo thing. So who knows if Vucic or the other Serbian leadership have given Dodik the green light. I wouldn't be surprised if he's just kind of giga-chatting it and taking it for himself, frankly. But uh, I want to hear your thoughts, Dimitri. Before I, before I do, I'm going to read what the biggest uh, consequence of this, the uh, OHR, they uh, amended 
the criminal code of Bosnia and Herzegovina, one of the articles was about uh, changing the constitutional order. And they basically, uh, the punishment of it before was, it says that whoever tries to change the constitutional order of Bosnia and Herzegovina or to overthrow its highest institutions by the use of physical force or the threat of using physical force will be punished by a prison sentence of at least five years. And they changed it to where it doesn't just say force or physical force or threat of physical force. It also says force, threat of force, or in another way, which is basically all them saying, yeah, what Dodik did by, you know, nullifying the court in his jurisdiction is this other way. So there does seem to now be precedent to arrest Dodik in Bosnia from the central authorities. But as far as I can tell, I don't think that those police or those military police that would go to arrest him would be able to get anywhere close to where he is due to the militarization of the Serbska police. Yeah, what's interesting is, uh, just quoting Reuters here, the particular court that we're referencing here, so essentially three of the nine court members are appointed by the president of the European Court of Human Rights, so essentially by the European Union itself, three of the, three of the main judges on the panel here, and six of the judges are appointed by regional parliaments. Two of them actually have they have to be Serbians from Respublika Srpska, essentially. And the uh, you know Dodik, for whatever reason, after one of the uh, one of the judges actually passed away. So Dodik, before the election of a new Serbian judge to the court, actually called the court a biased inquisitional court, which has violated the constitution in a number of cases. Dodik expressly informed the parliament, and of course, then they passed a law which essentially you know pushes the Republika Srpska further away from the greater Bosnia-Herzegovina. So essentially, what we're seeing here, by way of analogy, Conrad, what at least what seems to me is someone who isn't too well-versed in Balkan politics is that Respublika Srpska essentially is a like a Donbass in the Ukraine. It is this like foreign in the side of unity for the greater Bosnia because it's simply, the people there simply don't fit with the average Muslim Bosnian, you know, a member of the, you know, member of Bosnia because, you know, the person identifies more of, say, just as Donbass people identify more of Russia and Bosnians identify, you know, Serbian Bosnians identify more of Serbia. And so, of course, the, the answer to Dodik's actions was, and I'm just going to quote uh, Nedim Ademovic, a constitutional law expert from Bosnia, says, this is a long announced legal secession in Bosnia and Herzegovina. It is the deepest crisis since, since the Dayton Peace Treaty. So he's basically saying since the Yugoslavian civil wars, this is the greatest crisis Bosnia-Herzegovina uh, has faced. And let's just say bluntly, Conrad, you mentioned military interventions in Kosovo and the fact that the European, you know, NATO is quite active right now on the map of Europe, given the last, in the last 30 years since, we want to say since the Yugoslavian war is right now helping Ukraine. And, you know, we have a lot of weapon movements, a lot of movements of money, as well as military aid on the board. And given the various crises going on in France as well as Ukraine at the moment, it's it does seem like perhaps NATO has overstretched itself. You know, even adding a new member such as Finland, what does that exactly give it to? You know, cement a certain peace in the Balkans. Like, could it could NATO assist the European Union in any way to shut down a Respublika Srpska secession act? If in case this, if this particular secession becomes violent. Like, will there be any military action? I'm not sure how capable the Bosnia-Herzegovina military is, so we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Of course, the uh, the authorities there in Bosnia, they did a flyover of Sarajevo with some bombers when all of this happened. But that's that was I think that was probably already planned. It's obviously a show of force against the Serbs. But you mentioned that NATO spread thin. Think about what's happening in Kosovo right now. I mean, they're calling out Kurti, the the Americans seem to be just vindicating the Serbs at every turn, saying that the Albanians are going too far. It's okay. They, they understand why the Serbs don't recognize the mayors that were elected with their boycott. 
in the Serbian municipalities, making them all Albanians. Like the the U.S. has sanctioned. I mean, they've sanctioned Kosovo. The EU is now sanctioning Kosovo. So I think Dodik may have seen this and been like, you know what? It doesn't look like these guys are willing to fulfill their pan-Albanian vision here. So let's do what we got to do with uh, Bosnia and get out of this. Because even, again, think about you know Bosnia. Even with three Serbs on the court, that's already still underrepresentation for Republika Srpska, especially, to, I mean, again, let's, let's be honest. I doubt the Bosnian authorities are picking the most uh, Serbian nationalist uh, judges to represent the Serbs either. So I think Dodik probably is onto something there. But again, with, with, with Kosovo, we see... Uh, Vucic has, you know, there's been troops on the border with Kosovo, and, you know, with these, uh, those police officers had been arrested, they had been released, of course, but Kurti himself has been up to the border too, he doesn't seem phased by the sanctions, so, in general, like, you're right, Dimitri, the Balkans, we've said it before, but it's so reminiscent of the Ukrainian conflict, you know, a, a Soviet state having collapsed into its constituent parts, its semi-ethnic constituent parts, and, I mean, even in the case of Srpska, it's literally the same shape as, like, the Donbass banana right now. Like let's like let's be honest. Like it's it's just like looping around the eastern border of the you know so-called country that it has been a part of for the past few decades. And the problem with Srpska even more than Donbass though is that there's a tiny little sliver of land, of course, that the Muslims insisted be populated by them. So the two, so it's not actually fully connected, despite it being almost the entire, you know, eastern. Uh, in southern kind of regions of Bosnia. I've driven through Srpska, actually. It's very, very beautiful. One of the most beautiful drives I've ever done. And it was, you know, you go, there's like like tunnels through the sides of mountains and all the stuff like that. We decided to do the Srpska route on our way to Montenegro from Croatia on a trip I did recently. And it was, it was gorgeous. So, you know, I can now say that I've been to, I was just in this place that's now, I guess, its own country. And I don't know how long if... It can stay in this state, like it could be indefinite if Bosnia isn't actually willing to do anything. The Serbs could just chill, kind of not obeying those laws, or perhaps they'll be really pushing to rejoin Serbia. It's, we're going to have to wait and see. Yeah, I think what recent politics has really shown us around the world, and specifically, I guess, in the Balkans, is that as soon as a politician, say, shows weakness or doesn't double down on even a bad action, it does lead to them eventually falling over because, well, mainly it's if these elections are truly fair and equitable elections and they actually count the votes, well, let's assume that they are in the Balkans. The electorate simply isn't interested in weak leaders, especially in Eastern Europe. We see this in uh, in countries like Montenegro. So the leader of Montenegro essentially supported a schismatic church. Then, of course, the protests happened. People came out on the streets, the metropolitan of Montenegro. This is a few years ago, of course, a protest that against the schismatic actions of the government. And of course, the government backed down and what happened to that government, it lost the next election. So even if, you know, even though that was probably a good thing, and that's, a you know, not, not probably, but that was a great victory for the church and uh, for orthodoxy in the world, but still that government showing weakness, not kind of doubling down on its moves. And in Kosovo as well, as, as you mentioned, NATO showing weakness, again, not really, you know, bullying Serbia as much as it probably could. Uh, and frankly, you know, that we can make analogies with what's happening in France right now, what's happening in Russia with Putin not exactly sanctioning Wagner and not doubling down on the fact that 
he did call them openly traitors and Wagner is kind of being let off the hook despite it, you know, destroying all this, all these uh, helicopters and even one plane and putting all these people to death. So it really, it really does, does affect how you are perceived, you know, I guess by the end, let's just make a really clear analogy for English speakers, even Donald Trump himself kind of, you know, colloquially speaking, cucking on the question of the vaccines, on Israel aid, all of these various things, ended, he ended up losing the election. And even during the uh, jury, during the recounting of the votes, he was saying, well, look, we're just going to have to wait. We're going to have to wait for the courts. We're going to have to do this properly. We're going to have to do this legally, despite having the executive power still on hands and, of course, not utilizing it, ending, ended up losing. And now he's being questioned as even a valid candidate against somebody like Ron DeSantis, who is clearly more of an establishment candidate. So Trump's legit legitimacy was completely, even amongst right-wingers, has completely evaporated due to, you know, the show of weakness. And unfortunately, you know, given our sinful human nature, we do treat power. We do see people with power, people who hold really strong positions like Putin, someone who really hasn't shown much weakness in 23 years of holding the reins in Russia. Um, we treat them with more respect than people who, you know, kind of back off from their positions, things like that. That's just probably just how our human perception works. And the elites know this, which is why they, uh, most of the time, they double down on their moves. But of course, they make mistakes here and there. And I think that's probably what we're seeing in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And frankly, in Montenegro, and maybe even in other places around, especially those promoting LGBT agendas, which I guess leads us into the Macedonian issue happening right now oh yeah that's uh thank you for reminding me before we move away from the balkans that's so important because we know macedonia one of these other you know relatively new countries since the breakup of yugoslavia and an even newer orthodox church having just come back into communion with the pan-orthodox community the serbs as now the macedonian orthodox church uh Ohrid archdiocese or whatever and they even the schismat most of the schismatics within their came into communion with another, one another despite the EP trying to sow a little bit of a little bit of discord but what recently happened was the government of northern macedonia the FYROM or just macedonia as it's called by macedonians themselves they're passing all sorts of gender and lgbt tolerance laws that are pledging state funds to initiatives that foster inclusion and all these sorts of things they're moving towards legalizing gay marriage recognizing transgenderism all this sorts of stuff and of course the entire macedonian orthodox church of which 90 plus percent of the country is a member <laughs> They have held meetings and rallies and called publicly for against the adoption of these laws. They've called for marches in the street, very similar to what we saw in Montenegro. And of course, the number one opponent of this was Bishop Yakov Stobiski of Strumica, who is a, a very outspoken conservative bishop who has, in many of his homilies and speeches, totally denounced the laws and the whole agenda that is now being pushed by the by the Macedonian authorities. They, there was recently Skopje Pride, which that's the capital city of Macedonia, which is, you know, we know what, just like a, I don't know if it's going to be as disrupted as Tbilisi Pride has been, which they've been completely driven out of Georgia, but we will probably see some mobilizations. And that also comes very close to Pristina Pride in Kosovo, which is having like a queer rights rally or something like that. So this just goes to show you if you're a if you're in the Balkans and you're somehow not in favor of, you know, the Orthodox nationalists perspective in whichever country you happen to reside in, you are de facto siding with Globo Homo. Yeah, that's right. And unfortunately, a lot of these Orthodox countries, sort of the ones who don't necessarily fall under the influence of Russia, they are met with this uh, great dilemma of, well, I guess we could, in, you know, take this wealth from the West and, you know, take their 
incentives and investments and actually open up and become a bit more liberal, a bit more democratic. And our churches, of course, also receive this, these benefits and everything looks really nice and we can actually pay our tithes. But is it worth it when our children in school are being taught some degenerate things or, you know, weird programs are being shown on TV? And in fact, later, of course, a gay marriage, of course, being brought up in countries like Georgia, actually, surprisingly, it's being discussed the, in the parliament openly at this point. I don't think it's been voted on at the moment, but kind of they tried to slide it in over there. So even countries as based as Gerousia in the Caucasus gay marriage and you know LGBT agenda is being pushed over there. So again, it's kind of in the shadows at the moment. No one's really reporting on it. Even, even locally in Georgia, it's just a matter of politicians voting, but there are really weird stuff going on, especially in this, some of the small Orthodox countries. There's always malicious influences, right? You have to look at Greece, have a look at just Greece's record on the entire alphabet community issues. And when it, when did Greece say, for example, decriminalize homosexuality? Like, was it under an Orthodox majority government? Yes, it was. How did that happen? I'm not sure. I'm not saying like all homosexuals deserve capital punishment or anything weird like that, but it's there is a real interesting move, legal, you know, legalizing that sort of thing in a majority Orthodox country. And you know, the question arises: Was that probably under the influence of NATO and the EU and Greece being a member of both? Most likely, yes. And so, of course, these small Orthodox countries need to be exceptionally cautious. And I guess Macedonia is showing that even. You know, even new Orthodox countries are targeted by the devil and his overall globalist servants, you know, on a small scale, but still for the people living there, it's actually quite palpable. And, you know, that is their reality. Well, just look at Greece for a good lesson on life. Don't get yourself into catastrophic debt. You will just become a slave to your enemies who control that debt. And we all know who controls international debt. I don't need to even say it. But when it comes to, you know, these little countries getting global homo pushed on them, I mean, just look at this. I talked about the high representative for Bosnia and Herzegovina. His name, of course, is Christian Schmidt. He, you know, his diplomatic title is literally His Excellency, despite, I'm sure, being a rigid anti-traditionalist as a member of the, you know, German center-right, which is almost in many ways worse than the German left, if you really think about it. But he, you know, declared Dodik's decision null and void in Srpska, you know, with a strong hand, just this guy. Yet, apparently, it's total nonsense and deserving of like police military response if the people of these countries do like the people's veto and show that 80 90 percent of them do not support this degenerate imperialism but that's just not how these things work you will get the hammer put down on you if you go against you know your overlords in the eu and in the global banking system you get the hammer put down on you if you go against lgbt stuff but you know if you want to you know be a muslim and take over areas or if you want to march in the streets with foreign NGOs that actively hurt the majority population, you get a pat on the back from the international community and get every nice article written about you. And all those people in those countries that don't speak English, you know, most of the nationalists aren't the people, these are people from the country that aren't as well versed in English and these international languages and everything. These aren't people that are going to be able to defend themselves in Western media. But these activists that live in the cities, some of them not even from these countries, of course, they're going to be able to whine and moan to their patrons in the international press. And it's how this narrative gets spun. It's how, you know, people listen to the show and wonder, how is how is this stuff even go on? Don't enough people know about this? No, because most people watch the BBC and <laughs> listen to NPR and stuff like that. So it's, um, be sure to pray, obviously, for the situation. We don't want another war, a second front to break out in the Balkans. But frankly, it seems that, especially from the Serb perspective, that their irredentism is inevitable. And I think it'd be best, frankly, if the West just got out of the way. 
Yeah, that's right. And perhaps, you know, the, the way the West actually gets out of the way in some of these countries, like especially, you know, the Ukraine is it just kind of collapses in, in on itself. And frankly, they can't uphold this huge debt ceiling that it's built for itself and uh, the inflation and the fiat currency and all this, all these various pyramid schemes, which, you know, everything is built on lies. And in fact, you know, being servants of the devil, it's like, yeah, he is the, he is the major liar here. He lied to Adam, he lied to Eve. And so here we are in this particular predicament. And in fact, a lot of countries like, you know, the various lies they spread, such as, uh, you know, uh, liberty, fraternity, equality, right? What we see mm-hmm. in, in particular in, in France right now that, you know, Apparently, a country can exist on this new age sort of idea of, well, I guess we bring everybody in and it'll be a melting pot and that can totally work, right? Because, well, everybody speaks French and I guess we eat different food and we even our religion is different. Our spirituality is very different. As uh, Bishop Salov's um, Zelenograd pointed out in his great post in April of this year, when he's originally from France, actually a member of Rokor, and he in fact mentioned that, well, ha- having moved to Russia and becoming a bishop, he said, in hindsight, France has changed over the last you know, a few decades due to immigration of a different kind. And he said, it's it's the great lie. It is the, the strange lie that you can mix people of different religions, cultures, and even ethnic groups, and they bring they bring different ideas of what it is to be a Frenchman into the question. And the question is, do they, do they want, even want to be Frenchmen to begin with? And of course, this causes conflict. And I do recommend everybody read his post on, I think it was the 13th of April in Telegram. Bishop Salva posted that, but I also retweeted it, which I think is really important just to see an Orthodox bishop's opinion on immigration in the new European context. But he mainly focuses on spirituality, whereas here, I think it's also a big political uh, political issue as well given that well as we can see like at, at least at this point and we're speaking about this on the second of July, you know first first almost second of july of course france is in big trouble is always almost 600 public buildings are burnt or you know probably people arrested at this time maybe over a thousand uh you know over 300 police officers injured 40,000 police and Various other law enforcement officers have been deployed. I think the number's growing. So as we're reporting, it could be as close to 45,000, which is an enormous amount. That's basically police in every single city. Everybody's, um, you know, called off leave early. You know, everybody's basically on their feet trying to protect uh, just basic, you know, shops, whatever. Reminiscent and analogous to the George Floyd riots of June 2020, when, of course, uh, the elite chose to use uh, George Floyd's death as a certain catalyst to burn down some American cities, probably in preparation for the late 2020 election of Donald Trump and raise the whole BLM issue. So it's, it's one big political um, human sacrifice project, of course, like instead of burning offerings, we, we're burning buildings now and praying to false, false idols. But what's happening in France, very similar to that. I'm not sure if it's BLM related, but definitely related to, I believe it was a young man who was killed by police officers because he failed to follow instructions and recklessly driving. What was the story, Conrad? Well, uh, to briefly say, you said you mentioned a very good comment about how sick and disgusting, you know, the people that are pushing all of this on us are. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to leave our past topic with the Bishop Yaakov. He called the LGBT community and their financers Satan's emissaries. And I think we can agree that with what we're seeing in France and, and we saw in America that this is very much the work of Satan's emissaries. And as far as what happened in France to start it off, it was a young Algerian French Algerian French national, 17 years old, who was known to the police at the time. So I'm sure even the officers arresting him recognized him. And he, I believe, drove off from a traffic stop while his like window was down. The officer fired a shot as he felt that he was endangering other people on the road and the sidewalk and people just walking he ended up smashing his car into a pole and he was dead and now it is very similar to the george floyd situation i mean there's there's a video of the event happening it isn't quite as 
I don't want to say graphic, but you can't really see him very well, so it's not quite as effective in propaganda as the George Floyd video was without the context of it and without the video angle showing that, you know, Derek Chauvin's knee was clearly on his back. But I think what we're seeing is very much, I mean, I don't know, I haven't seen any good evidence that it's being fun. Well, the only evidence I've seen is that the left-wing groups are mobilized themselves. However, I wouldn't be surprised if there was some, you know, Soros-type money providing some level of organization and purchasing, you know, some of these even weapons that are being provided. I mean, we're seeing, this is, this is even more than some of the Black Lives Matter stuff at this point. We've seen, we've had like, I believe, 11 police shot with live ammunition. I've seen multiple videos of grenades being lobbed. The firework warfare, which has been pretty normal now in the past eight, nine, ten years, is out, out of control. Uh, there's French flags being burned, and a very interesting phenomenon. There was a video that was going viral, and I think was even banned from being distributed in France because it was, you know, giving such a strong, I guess, right-wing reaction. I think all the migrants, Africans, the Muslims, they were trying to burn a French flag and just desecrating this big Holocaust museum, which is just so ironic because, you know, these Holocaust museums are put up by the number one pay, uh, like the number one patrons of diversity in the world, and the. And it just shows that the the actual diversity itself has no interest or care about really anything besides their own interests, despite it supposedly being, you know, these Holocaust museums kind of being the the holy sites of the modern age, I guess you would call them, based on the narratives that were, were told about modernity. But yeah, I mean, we're seeing some of the videos are just insane. Cranes on fire, entire malls burning down, Africans with snipers on the roof looking for police. You mentioned that 40, 45,000. 40,000 was the initial deployment. The next day, they only got up to 45,000, which I think is evident someone else was saying this, not me, that they have been calling on full mobilization for, you know, reserves and everything, and not all of them are coming up because a lot of these police see this whole thing as Macron's fault. Like, look, the police, if they're given some benefits and told they'll be protected in the court, they'll beat on some yellow vests, they'll beat on some of these pension protests, because at the end of the day, all those protesters were white French people. So the powers that be, Macron's government specifically, has no problem empowering the police totally to put the beat down on those people. But now we see, you know, every minority basically is mobilized into the streets of France because Macron didn't stand by the police. He immediately apologized. He said that we need justice for Nahel. The officer involved has been arrested, of course. So the police are thinking, why the hell are we going to defend you, man? You just threw us under the bus. Like we like, and so you want us all to go to war, and that's the other thing. They don't feel as empowered to even fight back because the more they fight back, like every video there is of another migrant with like his eye shot out by a pepper ball or one of these or someone getting sprayed down with a hose, that just emboldens the riots even more. And Macron has said that like we need to hold police accountable and everything, and this has prompted a lot of the police unions to threaten literal mutinies to the point where they're saying we are not going to mobilize for you if you don't give us concrete promises that we are going to have judicial protection, all sorts of stuff like that to where they are, you know, in more innocence until proven guilty, like they're just mad that he threw the police officer under the bus so fast. And at this point, I mean, this is just uh, very recent as I'm reading this. Leading police, the union says yesterday's statement was, mis was misinterpreted, says they face an urban guerrilla when they talk about resistance. They said unionist resistance, unionist fighting, even though they fell short of their denying they meant a war was happening in France, or exclude a mutiny. So I think uh, some of the police are uh, very confused right now, and they, uh, they realize that it's going to get really bad. If I mean, we're seeing reports of certain right-wing groups mobilizing as well because the police presence hasn't been strong enough in certain areas. However, those guys will probably get denounced pretty quickly by the government. 
I don't see uh, how that exactly will help any, obviously protect your property and the people you love, but I don't think there's any need to run into the fray unnecessarily. But I mean, the only other theory that I'll put forward, and I don't believe, like this is ultimately just the consequences of diversity. France has, it gets one of the highest foreign born populations more and more every year. It doesn't help that even before the mass immigration meme, they had this kind of lingering empire of African and states that could always come back into France. So they have this fairly large diversity problem. And we know Macron, you know, we've seen the pictures of him and the, and the French soccer team, you know, we know what he's all about in that regard. But as far as other theories go, there is the possibility that this is being somewhat encouraged by American institutions in France. I mean, I'm just, I'm not saying this to downplay the impact that the diver, that to downplay the effective consequences of diversity that we're seeing play out in real time, but France has been moving away from the U.S. And I'm not saying France is even moving in a based direction, but they are just objectively are, in Macron's own words, moving towards what he sees as a more independent European Union led by France, neoliberal, uh, cooperating with China. And, you know, he talked about joining BRICS. He's literally said that the U.S. has too much influence. You know, he went and met with Xi Jinping and spoke positively of possible Chinese mediation of the Ukrainian war. And that's not acceptable to the United States. I mean, that is, uh, that, that goes completely against all their interests. I mean, they didn't blow up the Nord Stream pipeline just to see France lead an independent European Union. You know, let's put it that way. So I think we can't completely write off the fact that, especially how long these have been sustained. I mean, these just keep going a lot, especially, you know, this certain demographic, these younger people, these migrants, like, a sustained protest effort does take does take some effort. Obviously, the French institutional left is mobilizing. Mélenchon, who was the left-wing candidate, who he came third against Macron and Le Pen in the past presidential election. He's like come out against the police. He's talking about France as an, France as an institutionally racist society, all this stuff, which I don't think that's going to serve him well in any future elections. That's the one thing I'll say. I can't imagine Zemmour and Le Pen not cleaning up in the next in the next French election in light of all of this, assuming they play their cards right. Yeah, there'll definitely be winners and losers out of this, but I I do agree with you that given uh, you know, Macron's recent uh almost sort of this his his move of, you know, claiming independence and doing his own thing with Armenia, essentially being the patron of Armenian foreign policy, essentially but you know, France being the only nuclear power essentially supporting Armenia no matter what in in the Middle East, as well as his meeting of Xi Jinping in April of this year as well, unprecedented, right? Essentially two nuclear powers, you know, meeting and kind of talking without the US's, you know, the US listening in. It's very kind of suspicious. And of course Macron is as well vetoing the NATO base in Tokyo, Japan which again probably upset a few of the NATO leaders and in fact this could be a certain punishment like they could be just whipping him back into shape like saying look well you've acted somewhat independently you think yourself a Napoleon the first or Napoleon the third or something like that well we're just going to you know uh, burn a few of your your heritage ancestral buildings down and we're going to release the uh, uh, the golems onto the streets and uh, see them break havoc and in fact that's probably what we're seeing here now is, is just, it's a multifaceted like on one hand yeah it's been building up to this for a while on the other hand it's 
yeah, there is a certain activation key that sets off the sleeper in like the the, the Born trilogy. You know, like you do need a keyword to, to set everything alight. And in fact, that's probably what we saw in in the Ukraine when the Maidan happened. It was kind of building up towards that in France as well. All the um, various immigrants who were, I guess, invited open with open arms into the French society who didn't really assimilate. In fact, a lot of them being young men really have nothing else going for them except you know, I suppose, work and hang out enjoying French culture for what it is. And uh, that has uh, not led to anything anything good in the long run. And of course, Macron's, we can't really defend Macron or even support him for that matter, because, hey, look at his hypocritical comments from a few days ago, just about six days ago after Prigozhin's uh, mutiny and actions in Russia. Macron says, I followed the events hour by hour, keeping in touch with the main partners of France, you have to be careful because the situation is still evolving, but it shows the division that exists in the Russian camp, the fragility of both its army and auxiliaries, such as the Wagner Group. All this should make us very vigilant and fully justifies the support we give to the Ukrainians in their resistance. And now as your country burns, Macron, we all question whether or not we, you know, anybody should support you, frankly, for that matter. And Russia will probably not support you. In fact, I don't think any of the Eastern European countries are interested in France, given its bullying potential, given what it has done to countries before, such as Libya, right? France was one of the main culprits destroying Gaddafi's, you know, essentially his regime, his entire country, the, the welfare state, which he wonderfully built in North Africa, which supported, you know, essentially would, would have been this beacon of hope for the African continent. But in fact, it was completely destroyed by NATO. And uh, a, a large part of that was, of course, on France, not on Macron personally, but on France. And now France, of course, suffers the consequences. I don't know if there'll be any sympathy, of course, sympathy for the right wing French protesters and those defending their local suburbs and communities. All I can say is let's be COVID friendly. If you're a French right wing protester, be COVID friendly, wear masks, do not show your faces, especially when you're def defending your homes, you're showing self-defense. Nobody wants video CCTV footage of your face while you're beating up a... Um, you know, a brown or, or a dark-skinned individual on the street, even if, it, you know, I'm not sure what self-defense laws exist in France, but, you know, just be careful. You have to be COVID safe. So always keep a mask on. Do not let anybody see your face. And frankly, if you are looking for things that will scare people away, you know, you have to scare away the bugs and mosquitoes, visit your local hunting store. I believe they do sell smoke flares there, which you can probably buy as well. As you walk into the hunting store, make sure you have a mask on because again, nobody wants to catch COVID or any of the other diseases going around. So <laughs> you have to keep that in mind. But France at the moment is in a lot of trouble. And uh, it's strange because we have friends in France, like one of the uh, big Orthodox theologians, suppose a young seminarian who possibly will become a clergyman, you know, God willing in the future. His name is Snake on Twitter. He used to run a pretty big Orthodox account. He's in France right now. So prayers for him and the Orthodox community there, because again, they are, again, the victims of complete trash and garbage, destructive satanic foreign policy and domestic policy, immigration policy, which France has conducted over the last few decades. It's very true. And I, I would definitely recommend heeding that advice. And I think when it comes to violence in general in France, this is it's already been stated that this is worse than the 2005 French riots, which were similarly, I believe, racial in nature, but those lasted for over three weeks. So if it's already worse than that, that means the scale of the damage per day is exponentially worse. And if it even comes close to lasting that amount of time, I mean, we're talking like, 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 like this will probably be the, like, I don't believe it would lead to a collapse, but this is probably the farthest along that collapse timeline that any modern first world western state has come to in the 21st century because this is it's completely unsustainable i mean 70 percent of the french public supports sending the military in and that doesn't seem to right now be on macron's plate and 
sure, he did just, he's not, doesn't he, he's enough for re-election super soon, so I don't see why he isn't willing to kind of put his foot down. Maybe he, maybe there's behind the scenes pressure from the U.S. or something, like we said. But I think when it comes to some of the more schizo aspects of this, I mean, I don't know if anyone saw this, that trailer for that movie, I think it was called Athena, which is literally about a migrant that gets shot by police and then France descends into a racial civil war. And that only came out a year ago. And I think it's, I mean, this is the kind of stuff I love to talk about, but people talk about predictive programming all the time and what all of, you know, what the, what the idea of media seeding ideas in people's heads means. I mean, the amount of 9-11 predictive programming, for example, is insane if you kind of look into 80s and 90s media. But what, what, what does that mean? What is predictive programming? Well, it's this, it's this seeding of narratives because we know Hollywood and these groups are very much funded by the government. It's, it's the seeding of narratives in the public consciousness so then when those narratives actually become real, they're not as jarring and people are able to kind of accept them as happening within the institutional frameworks in which we exist. It's basically a counter-revolutionary measure as far as I'm concerned in the sense that you kind of desensitize people to that, implement it in their real life, you know, especially in these urban centers, you know, for these suburban people, people that might not live right in the center of the city. So they're not quite at South Africa level yet. You know, they can still, you know, think the government's in control, think it's all going to be okay and all of that. But I mean, that not to withstand just the diversity programming that people have to where so many people in France and everywhere in the West in the midst of all of this are still unwilling to just say what needs to be said. And, you know, Zemmour, the uh, identitarian candidate who got, I believe, 9% of the vote in the first round of the French presidential election, he's just said it straight up. He says, this is a racial ethnic war and a determined leader would have sent in the military already. And of course we know Macron is only determined about one thing, and that is becoming some kind of neoliberal despot of a powerful Central European state, which, you know, I guess that makes him Richard Spencer's favorite politician. <laughs> yeah, you mentioned predictive programming. I think the one film that everybody brings up was 2011's Contagion, which essentially you know, almost by a decade precedes the COVID-19 pandemic and essentially all the various lockdowns which happen within. And, you know, the, the predictive programming is a real thing. We saw the, of course, the X-Files episode about the Twin Towers going down, things of that nature. Like, this is what the elites love. And I just, I'm just going to paraphrase Jay, Jay Dyer, but when he mentions that the elites that run the world, the globalists on a very conspirological th um, uh, level, they, they think in decades and they think in, you know, 50, 20 year blocks, perhaps even centuries. They don't think that one simple failure, such as the COVID lockdown or not everybody getting vaccinated, that doesn't really set them back. Um, what sets them back is, you know, people actually converting to orthodoxy and teaching their kids about the faith, things like that. That really kind of put, pulls a wrench into their plans, which is why, you know, as we discussed earlier, they do whatever they can to shut down any sort of a Christian education amongst these countries. And they try to get into the education system. It's to prevent proper upbringing of, um, you know, upstanding Christian citizens, but nevertheless, uh, you know, this predictive programming and the fact that they, they do predict things ahead of time is very common. Uh, very interestingly, in terms of predictive programming and people alluding to things, I, I did watch a recent episode of uh, Father Andre Tkachov's uh, Five Minute. He makes he releases these weekly five-minute uh, talks. He's a very famous Orthodox priest, probably the most famous Orthodox priest in the world today in terms of audience, even though he doesn't make any English content. He only films in Russian, but on Sargrad TV by Malafeyev, he released an interesting episode after the Prigozhin coup, and he doesn't even talk about the coup. He talks about a, a 1980s Japanese movie called Kagemusha, 
which is filmed by the Japanese, you know, very famous director Kurosawa. And in Kagemusha, it's a story about a shogun, so a local lord who passes away. And when the local lord passes away, all of his, uh, all of the nobles in court, essentially, and all the generals, they, they know there's going to be a mutiny, the country's going to fall apart. So what do they do? They find a double for the, for the shogun. They grab a thief off the street who looks exactly like the lord who just passed away, and they pretend... They tell him, look, we're going to cut your head off if you're not going to act like the Shogun, but just you, we're going to have to keep you here to keep order. And we have Father Andre describing this movie and then recommending all of his audience to watch it. And he says, you have to watch this, but don't make sure you don't eat popcorn, make sure you don't drink too much. You have to watch this movie very soberly. Uh, it's a 1980s Japanese movie. And I'm just like, huh? What's Father Andre talking about? And the movie is essentially about replacing a lord and then of course the nobles and the generals in the country keeping the peace and it's just very esoteric but in fact maybe father andre was alluding to something i'll let you guys figure that out um i'm not going to make any i'm going to put words into father andre's mouth but i guess he is the one of the biggest spokespersons for the Euroflux church in russia which was uh frankly maybe even disrespected very heavily by the recent actions of the uh Prigozhin uh, mutiny and in fact probably the reaction of the official of the official powers if there was any psyop type explanation to it it means the the orthodox church was essentially psyop too because well you had all these bishops praying for peace and essentially claiming that the country was on the brink of civil war when in fact if it was a psyop and if it was an inside job then perhaps in the end uh all the you know not that their prayers were for naught because in fact when you know we should actually pray for an avoidance of civil war and in fact when there's militants driving a car driving an entire you know several platoons worth of soldiers up up towards Moscow, but definitely should be considered that uh, the Orthodox Church, I think, got the short end of the stick in this particular event. Nevertheless, kind of bringing it back to France, I think it, it is very important that the elites, that the that people understand that Macron, again, is only a subject of greater powers pulling the strings. Let's not pretend Macron, even if he presumes himself to be this Napoleonic figure who runs things similar to Prigozhin in Russia, you know, he believed himself maybe at one point, even though Maybe he sniffed too much cocaine or something, which you know, was found in his in his uh, business apartment in Saint Petersburg. But you know, people assume themselves more than what they actually are. But in fact, these people are servants. Prigozhin was a servant. Macron is a servant. They serve higher powers. And not, I'm not talking about God or angels or saints here. We're speaking about, of course, uh, powers of the world. So again, and people's pride it leads them to if the devil turned against God at the, you know at the beginning of time. What do you think these degenerates, you know, would they turn against their masters possibly? Yes. Yeah, look at Macron visiting Xi Jinping, personally vetoing the NATO base in Tokyo. For, to what end? And of course, the punishment is is great here. And they set his country on fire just to kind of show him who's boss. And that's probably what I think is behind this. You know, that's just my conspiratorial take here. I think uh, in general, Macron is very afraid he just is really afraid of the identitarian rise in france because i think the french right in general is taken there's no more like this center right you know nonsense this economically conservative socially liberal that's just not a popular position to hold anymore because it makes no sense it's completely divorced from the reality that any traditional or normal person is living in so macron is obviously afraid of coming out and using the rhetoric that would be appropriate to talk about what's really going on here, but he knows that that will only empower his political enemies. But when it comes to predictive programming, if we want to talk a little bit about, like you said, the coup in Ukraine and everything like that, I mean, the entire Zelensky presidency was predictively programmed. Like, I mean, he was, he played the president on a TV show for years and then became the president. And now we're seeing a minstrel show. So it's, uh, it's very much real. It's very much a reality within 
the Russo-Ukrainian War. But be sure to, again, check out our Ether Hour episode 10 to get our full, unadulterated, no-nonsense take on the Wagner coup and what really went down. But I guess we'll give a brief kind of overview. As of right now, we really view the main two winners as Lukashenko and Strelkov. Is that right, Dmitry? Yeah, I think I think we can agree that Lukashenko essentially, you know, received a fully trained, uh, a fully trained, uh, you can call it a, an army corps by its size, almost 20,000 soldiers to essentially reside in Belarus and essentially fall under his protection, including Prigozhin himself, who is by all, by all accounts an incredibly skilled executive manager of sorts who can actually run multiple companies, corporations. So the man is very skilled. And if you know how hard these skills are to attain, his leadership skills are probably second to none in Russia. There's not just a, a business oligarch who is, you know, of a questionable heritage. No, the man is actually skilled. Yeah, he may be a scumbag, he may be, you know, a traitor, etc. But he actually does have these skills on Lukash- Lukashenko probably wants to probably wanted to, you know, take them on for, for himself. Why assassinate this guy? Use him as an asset to build something up in Belarus. And what does Belarus need, Conrad? What we've realized of course, and what a lot of people have realized when they do check even something basic like the Wikipedia page of Belarus is Belarus has never ever participated in in any conflict, armed conflict, since its inception in 1991. So, so Belarus, the the Belarusian military has zero experience, and who 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 best to teach them? Actually, like on the ground, actually give them the run through, and maybe even prepare them for a, a confrontation with the po- possible Polish adversaries, or even some uh, northern Ukrainian intervention of sorts, like a, a special military operation with a Belarus flavor, Belarusian flavor. It would be, of course, the Wagner. PMCs who are technically, you know, even though they were, they're all Russian officers and they are Russian ethnically, but Belarusian and great Russian people are very similar anyway. So, in fact, I mean, they're almost, I mean, pretty much the same people. So, having Wagner over there is a great asset. And of course, personally, for protection as well, he'll have Prigozhin in his pocket. And Prigozhin, as we know, he did run the troll factories in St. Petersburg, which, you know, everybody kept talking about Russian trolls. Remember during the Trump election of 2016? Guess who set up the troll farms? Prigozhin is the CEO. He He's the guy. So, the Russian trolls were a real thing. And of course, they, they were very active during the 2018 presidential election in Russia as well, with Vladimir Putin. But Prigozhin is the guy who actually set that up and had all the IT people involved. Again, he ran things top down. He hired all the managers. He he has a crazy, very inventive business mind, which probably why he was set by the Kremlin to run the you know Slavonic battalion or whatever Wagner was called before it was called Wagner by Dmitry Utkin. So Dmitry Utkin was the original guy. His codename was Wagner actually. And he, I guess he's the main military brain behind this, but Prigozhin was put by the Kremlin on top of this structure to kind of control it from a Kremlin perspective. And then eventually he went rogue and I guess uh, did what he did. But some people do are calling it a PSYOP, Conrad, despite all the military losses of the helicopters and the plane. And roughly that equates to, I think we looked at the math, it's the six helicopters plus the reconnaissance plane, which the reconnaissance plane is so rare. I think they stopped being built in nine, 1985. So in fact, Russia only has what, several tens of them possibly. So this Prigozhin's troops actually shooting this plane down of the anti-air missile is insane because, well, Russia simply can't build a new one. It doesn't have the tech. So, you know, it's a really big loss, but uh, the, the losses account to roughly about $40.5 uh, million in, in American. It doesn't sound like much, but again, it's just a, another, and you know, what's even worse than the money aspect is the lives lost, you know, 15 to 20 crew members. Officially, we've seen a few funerals, but at the moment, it's not, not all, not all the names are disclosed and it's a pretty big loss for Russia. And reputationally, I mean, having a, an army corps drive, you know, 8,000, 10,000, however many troops drove towards Moscow, it's just a bad look. And of course, the southern, uh, usually the Okrug, the southern command center of the Russian army, one of the 
five main bases of the Russian military, like at least behind the scenes, being captured by this, uh, I guess this random businessman and his uh, his band of PMCs is just it's a really bad look. Despite the fact that recall in the live stream, Conrad, I mentioned the fact that Prigozhin, you know, on, we couldn't tell from the clips because we were kind of covering this live, so we didn't have the full info. But I did mention the fact that Prigozhin's troops, Wagner. They were going to have access to the documents inside the Southern Command Center, correct? I said, that, look, they were going to like dox the entire Russian military. They'll have all the data, all the you know, well, it's 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 insane the access they would have. But in fact, they never entered the command center because in some of the clips you can see, in hindsight, this was confirmed that even though Prigozhin had, was speaking to the two generals there, and uh, you know. Uh, very amicably, he actually never, Wagner never accessed the actual command center itself because the tr troops guarding it, in, f in fact, unless, I think it's, the, the order has to be very high, but the troops guarding it have an order to shoot to kill anyone who tries to access without proper clearance. It's top secret, it is, and they never, they never ended up shooting, so, and you can't simply tell them, hey boys, these are not boys, these are not conscripts, these are like elite Russian guard troops, who, you can see them in the clips actually, when Wagner's are walking along the streets near the command center, you can see there's Russian official Russian army troops standing there as well, and they're just watching them. That's because, well, they're there to actually protect all the um, the, the command center itself, which wasn't accessed by Prigozhin. So Prigozhin's, so that, I was wrong on the live stream saying that, look, these are the really big, dire implications. In fact, if anything, Prigozhin, you know, the, 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 the command general ended up giving Prigozhin the phone, allegedly, through which he spoke to Lukashenko, which ever ended up finishing this uh, particular debacle, right? So Prigozhin stayed in Rostov. He never drove to Moscow personally. From what we understand, it was Dmitry Utkin who led the alleged march of justice towards Moscow while Prigozhin stayed in Rostov and the Don. But hey, um, nevertheless, Lukashenko is one of the biggest winners. The second one, of course, Strelkov, who, you know, completely stayed on track in terms of his critique of Prigozhin throughout the entire day last weekend. So from Friday night on to Saturday, he critiqued Prigozhin. He called this a, he called this a coup attempt, a mutiny. Essentially, a mutiny is what it was. And uh, I think it was a big and now that Russia's on the defensive in Zaporozhye, in the, in the Donetsk Oblast, and even in Kherson, near the Antonov Bridge today, Strelkov mentioned the fact that the Russians are on the defending side. The last thing they need to do is read reports that their hometowns are being driven through by these this band of like mercenaries who are part of their, you know, you imagine that your relatives, right? You're in Zaporozhye, Conrad, you're defending, you're in the trenches. Meanwhile, your, your wife and kids are in Rostov and you read about this, you know, the PMC driving through it and like stopping for a break in Rostov and the Don, going to McDonald's or something. And you're just like, hold on, isn't a quarter of that like ex-convicts from like some Siberian prison, right? Like this stuff gets in your head while you're sitting in the trench somewhere. It's just bad. It's really bad for the morale of the troops of the Russians. And uh, Prigozhin's coup ended up, or whatever it was, this mutiny against Shoigu and the Ministry of Defense ended up failing because, hey, Shoigu is still in a position of power despite heavy reputational damage. He still is where he is, and we're about only a week away from the event. So I guess we'll see what happens. Oh, it's really interesting. And of course, we say this in episode 10, the real victory in general was just that the ukrainians made absolutely zero progress and zero they capitalized absolutely nothing on this opportunity i guess you could call it so the other thing being i think you agree with me dimitri i, I think almost most parties involved and i wouldn't even be surprised if strelkov knew about it a few days in advance knew about this somewhat in advance i mean we've seen the telegram messages among wagner people and wagner sympathetic people talking about organizing things for the convoy and i wouldn't be surprised if putin perhaps 
knew this was coming, and that might even further explain why we saw that shorter five-minute video. He was probably, I wouldn't be surprised if people involved were really weighing a more dramatic response with like a reshuffle, but realized that, no, we have this under enough control to where we should really just not make it a big deal. I think that's, I think that's a pretty safe take. Yeah, correct. And it's also why, um, essentially, the, you know, there are questions as to why some of the helicopters were trailing the Wagner, you know, the Wagner group has moved towards Rostov in a way, and in fact, the, you know, who shot first was the helicopter, so was it Wagner? I think the consensus at the moment is that, Wa that Wagner, you know, at least the guy who was controlling the anti-air missile setup, uh, you know, it was it was a mobile missile setup. He he was actually very trigger happy. Apparently, he was some crazy guy who apparently was a really good shot, um, and in fact, uh, yeah. So that's the conclusion at the moment, even though the consensus from Prigozhin and from the audio clips we received was that the helicopters were actually shooting at, at the Wagner battalion as it was moving through. So, in fact, as I guess the, the real mystery, right, despite, of, despite the question of who shot first, was uh, who actually commanded the helicopters to trail the, the Wagner group and who, you know, who ordered them to be there in the first place? Which I guess the question is still unanswered because, well, the victims of those of those the the, the crews themselves who passed away and who were killed by the Wagner group, uh, they are the true victims of this, right? As despite you know, the victims are of course those who lost reputational damage, but the real victims are the ones who passed, um, not fighting the enemy, but fighting in like some sort of weird internal administrative dispute, and that's quite sad. Nevertheless, um, you mentioned the fact that there was some premonition, and I agree. The fact that the command center wasn't entered into, it was it seemed kind of staged in Rostov. Nobody shot, despite the fact that it's just the whole the whole event was quite bizarre. The, as as well as we recall, the FSB, the border guards, uh, they let they allowed the Wagner Group through, even though technically you could say Wagner Group being the most equipped army corps of the Russian Federation at the time, even though it was a PMC. Putin did reveal. Uh, you know, so you you could kind of argue, could anyone even stand in the way of Wagner, right? But yeah, that's, I guess, a debate. But I guess there was some sort of premonition there. And Putin, in the end, did reveal, right, Conrad, that the Russian Federation did pay almost a billion dollars to the Wagner group over the last year and a half during the, during the special military operation, which... Uh, the question is then, if the Wagner Group was receiving all these funds, you know, paying for their drones, for their weapons, for their artillery, these um, anti-air missiles, etc. Well, well, who, who then is? I mean, I suppose the, their contractor is the Russian government, then, right? It, w it wouldn't be Prigozhin; it would be the Russian government. And in fact, they haven't fulfilled their contract. They actually turned on their on the on the people that are paying them, which is a huge reputational blow. Because consider the fact that they also have various smaller contracts with all these various African countries and in the Middle East as well. And I think from what I understand, there are rumors going on that Russian diplomats are working overtime at the moment, trying to reassure, now that Wagner is taken care of, trying to reassure these African countries that, hey, the Wagner group guys, the mercenaries that you have here in Africa, in the Central African Republic, these guys are different. The ones in Russia were rogues. These guys, your African Wagners, these guys are good. Keep them in place because, hey, they're supporting, they're protecting your presence. They will never turn against your African president like they did with Putin. So it's a pretty hard sort of argument to make. And, and of course, the Africans know, they, they know their coups quite well. And they're just, man, they're, they're feeling a little bit dodgy at the moment because would you really want these... Uh, these uh, these elite Russian troops, uh, you know, turning on you like they turned on Putin again. Very bad, very bad look for Russia. And but nevertheless, look at Lukashenko. He's brave enough to actually bring them under his wing. So hey, uh, I guess we'll kind of see. 
if uh, the Wagner group gets broken up. Again, there's this argument that, hey, they shouldn't be broken up. Wagner are the real victims. But in fact, throughout history, if a mercenary group or any corpse or any army regiment or battalion ever turned against their generals or even turned against the high command, they would always be broken up. That's just the rule. That's the default view. So I don't actually... Um, you know, Putin calling for it and the MOD, the Ministry of Defense, despite all the incompetent people surrounding Shoigu and Shoigu himself being a, just an absolute loser and misplanning the entire SMO from the start. I think we have to keep in mind that, you know, the, the future of Wagner is very much in the hands of Lukashenko and the Belarusians. It's if it was up to the Russian Federation, I think they would stick to these Soviet slash Russian imperial traditions and completely disband Wagner, kind of spread out its experienced troops amongst all the other regiments and battalions that they have access to. Well, speaking of Wagner in Belarus, uh, there's been some reports very recently that the main uh, contingency of the PMC is located with the, on the territory and kind of intermingled with the 465th Missile Brigade of the Belarusian Armed Forces, which are currently in the Mogilev region of Belarus, which is eastern Belarus, slightly south, central eastern Belarus. And so that means that if the majority of them are there, that means that you're right, they are, seem to be, even based on what I'm reading, the beginning of them being somewhat integrated in training with the Belarusian armed forces themselves seems to be happening. So that is definitely something to keep our eyes open for. And as far as, Dmitry, unless you have any battlefield updates on some of the stuff going on in Ukraine, I know there's been a lot of attempts by Ukrainians to enter onto some of those islands within the river off the coast of Kherson on the side. But besides that, I've got some church stuff to talk about too in Ukraine. Yeah, I think just the, the the main view at the moment in Ukraine is that they have begun mobilization efforts in the western areas of Ukraine. So Ivan the Front Corps, Kulvov, etc. All those areas which were essentially saved from mobilization because hey, these areas contain the most Aryan Ukrainians, <clears throat> quote unquote, the most you know the most Western Europeanized Ukrainians. They were saved from mobilization in the early periods of the SMO, as well as in since 2014, they weren't really sent to fight against those in the Donbass. They tried to essentially send Central Ukrainians to fight against Eastern Ukraine. Ukrainians in order to kind of, in a way, to genocide the whole, any Russian-speaking population, because Western Ukrainians, some of them don't even speak Russian, frankly. Like, that's how, I guess, uh, Ukrainianized they are. And now, in fact, what, sh what this is showing us, these these orders in these local cities and uh, Ukrainian oblasts, is that, that, well, there aren't enough troops. But, yeah, the, the real risk, I think, at the moment is, uh, well, Russia's holding this defense line, and we see fighting at the at the Kherson Oblast, the um, Antonov Bridge, which is getting mined up, and it's bombarded by artillery from both sides, very intense battles over there, but as well as the Zaporozhye, Ukrainians always trying to push through in that area, and up north, north of Donetsk, north of Solidar, the Ukrainians pushed roughly, what, 150 meters, they ended up losing close to 100 people, it's almost one person a meter they lost trying to get through, and they lost, I think, one tank, and, like, there's, there are these small Essentially, the, the view is this week is this, this small pushes along the three different regions in Ukraine. The Ukrainians trying to push through, trying to see where they can poke through and prod the Russian defenses, knowing that they have an, an entirely fresh conscription process ongoing. Meanwhile, the Russian side, and this is, I think, the big news, and I've, I've followed both Ukrainian and Russian media here, and both sides have confirmed that there are no additional mobilization efforts whatsoever on the Russian side. So what the Russians have on the ground now trained is all they're going to get. There aren't going to be backup mobilizations. I suppose they haven't even started yet. So the Ukrainians do have a huge numbers advantage. And if they can actually break through and cause chaos on the Russian lines, it is a little bit scary. So that's the primary concern 
I believe, at the mo- at the moment for the Russian side during the SMO. Yeah, like I said, the big failure of Ukraine was just to not... I mean, it shows... It, it does lend some credence to not just that there was foreknowledge, but that there might have even been some reassurances given to the troops beforehand how little Ukraine was able to capitalize on the, the turmoil over those two, you know, slightly less than 48 hours almost, it seemed. But... Besides that, the big thing going on in Ukraine, of course, in the world of the church, is Zelensky has now decided that he wants to enforce the new calendar. And for those that don't know, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, as well as you know the autonomous Ukrainian Orthodox Church under it, led by Metropolitan Onefri, have always been on the Julian calendar, the old calendar of the Orthodox Church, which is also shared by the Serbs, uh, the Bulgarians... Uh, I believe the Georgians and the Jerusalem Patriarchate are all on the old calendar, and as well as the Alaskan uh, diocese of the OCA. They've been allowed to stay on the old calendar as well. And of course, Antiochians, those under the Ecumenical Patriarch, uh, Romanians, uh, Cypriots, and a few others are on the new calendar, which is called the Revised Julian. And we all have the same Pascha, of course, but besides that, none of the feast days really line up. Of course, Russians are known for their January 7th nativity celebration as opposed to the December 25th in the West. That's how, uh, that's kind of where the most obvious discrepancy is. Remember, uh, Jokic, the NBA MVP in interviews, he's been wished a Merry Christmas and immediately corrected the reporter, oh, it's not my Christmas. And the person clearly has no idea what he's talking about. But the enforcement, Dmitry, I mean, not Dmitry, Zelensky wants to make all the churches, including the canonical UOC, which is, you know, being persecuted, conform to the new calendar, which the Orthodox Church, the Schismatics, the OCU, the Orthodox Church in Ukraine, as they go by, they are under the Ecumenical Patriarch or were granted autocephaly, supposedly, by the Ecumenical Patriarch. So they are already on the new calendar. And then, of course, the Uniates are also on the new calendar, or even the Gregorian calendar. So Zelensky is trying to bring, you know, it's just another attempt of him to draw a line of division across the country and say, look at these people, they're Russians, they can't even use the same calendar as the rest of us. Look at those backwards Easterners. So it's it's very unfortunate, but it's uh, it's reminiscent of the similarities of things going on in Greece that happened a long time ago when there was big splits in the church over the calendar. And I believe that, you know, as as orthodoxy spreads and grows, eventually we'll see an end to this Ukrainian schism, and hopefully we can even see a return to the whole church, to the old calendar. But it does show you that these things matter and, you know, these powers and these tyrants of this world and the, the principalities and powers of the air, you know, those in high places, they care about the calendar and dates and these kinds of things. They're not irrelevant. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that Zelensky actually brought this up. It's almost like some demon whispered in his ear because, in fact, on the new calendar, there are some years when the calculation, because, you know, of just the calendar being so flawed, that there, there are some years when the when the June slash July apostles fast is almost one day or sometimes even in the negative. So in fact, it doesn't even take place. And this is the fast we just recently had here in the Orthodox Church. So the Peter and Paul apostles fast sometimes doesn't, it's maybe a day or two instead of being, you know, a good week to three weeks long. Uh, yeah, so that's the new calendar is completely flawed. It's unfortunately, it's brought in brought in through the Freemasons in the Greek church you know, over a hundred years ago. And it was brought during a time of strife, essentially, when the the catacomb was lifted from our midst, you know, in Russia after Saint Nicholas II was slain by the uh, 
Bolsheviks and those uh, even people of even darker intent, that's when the new calendar was brought in. So it wasn't brought in by by the Tsar or by some sort of synod or ecumenical, ecumenical council. It was brought in during a time of a dire strife when the whole Orthodox world was burning up in, in essentially persecution and just a, a lot of really dark stuff was going on. And of course, Zelensky, uh, I always make this analogy, we made it with Jay Dyer on one of our earlier World War Now episodes, was Zelensky really painting himself like a second Lenin. And in fact, that's probably the best historical analogy for him. I was trying to compare him to Kerensky or like Napoleon or Julian the Apostate or some other degenerative history. But Lenin, I think, is the best fit for him because, well, similar sort of uh, ethnicity, um, similar uh, the way he his attitude towards the church. So he doesn't outright persecute it, but he persecutes it through policy. So Lenin never, you know, he always, he kind of trash-talked the church in his private writings, but in order to attack it, he created policies and made it legally very difficult to be orthodox. And in fact, this was this was Zelensky's doing. Lenin again also changed the calendar in Russia, changed it from the old to the new, right? Shifting society, kind of moving it away from the church, right? Because remember, the Russian Empire was always on the old calendar, so society ran in sync with the church. Today, it is out of sync thanks to Lenin. Zelensky wants to essentially drive that same wedge in the Orthodox community, or even on, on one hand, right, Conrad, you mentioned the discriminatory factor where Zelensky will point fingers and say, hey, you guys are weird. Uh, look at these uh, old school um, backwards Orthodox folks. They're still on the old calendar. On the other hand, it's almost like a, it's a call towards Anufri saying, hey, well, if you do adopt this new calendar, maybe we'll stop the persecution. And it is a very enticing call, right? We'll just say, look, you guys have lovery. You guys have a lot of monasteries, all these relics. We'll keep your relics fine. We'll keep your, you can keep your relics as long as you switch over to the new calendar. And it could be even a call for some sort of ecumenism because the calendar difference in, in fact, providentially, I guess, providentially by God's grace and the prayers of the saints has kept a lot of the ecumenism at bay and in a lot of these old calendar countries, right? If you think about it, because, well, how do you even... Uh, co-serve and co-celebrate with uh, heretics, schismatics, if you guys are on different calendars. So you have to consider the fact that Zelensky's probably doing, he's playing two games here at once. He's very, it's a very demonic sort of strategy. And again, it's just uh, the other, of course, reference historically would be the Lenin and his support for the Abnovlense, or not his support, but the Abnovlense were essentially a Bolshevik project. These are the renovationists, or maybe renovationists is the wrong word, it's essentially the progressive wing of the schismatic church in Russia, which appeared in 1918. And after that, which opposed St. Tikhon and the actual Orthodox people, and they tried to reform the church, modernize it, so modernize it to appeal to the Bolshevik powers, and essentially what Zelensky's uh, schismatic church is doing now in Ukraine, essentially modernizing itself in, in accordance, of course, with the blessing of the ecumenical patriarch Bartholomew himself, but again, primarily with the blessing of Zelensky, their patron, and that's essentially what happened in the Soviet Union, so it's I think it's a very clear analogy, and Everybody should pray for the Orthodox Christians in Ukraine. The persecutions, even if they've died down, there's, there's still, um, of course, it's the soft power, right? Which is, you know, pushing people, pushing people into into these you know, questionable situations where their faith is tested. And, you know, they need our prayers over there. Well, and let's just not forget that the, I mean, the old count, the new calendar itself was one of the first things that, or even the Gregorian calendar was one of the first things that the Bolsheviks did when they took power was they enforced, you know, that. that was the first time. The only time Russia's ever been on that calendar was under, of course, the Bolsheviks. And it's, and remember, you talk about Freemasons. Miletios Metaxakis, the ecumenical patriarch, who was only the EP for two years, was the one that called the Congress of Constantinople that put the new calendar into place. And he was only, like I said, he was only the EP for two years. He was a literal Freemason. like, And he, 
for his brief time as the EP, he did you know some of the worst things he could. He was a hyper-ecumenist, and he put in the new calendar, which has since spread to almost half of the Orthodox churches now. So it's it's very disappointing. But I guess we're, we shouldn't be surprised about any of this from Zelensky. But yeah, besides the calendar stuff, there's obviously I mean, there's the Vilnius summit coming up in Vilnius is in Lithuania, and that's. Zelensky is trying to get on the fast track to NATO and like begin the process. It doesn't seem that the Western powers are necessarily going to go that far yet. But we also see Sweden moving to get into NATO. There's being more and more pressure put on Turkey, which it seems that uh, that Quran burning seems convenient for, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, some Russians or some anti-NATO people were making sure that this guy burns the Quran whenever Sweden is about to get into NATO, because Turkey always is like, oh, no, look at this, look at this, this is terrible, we can't let them in. So it's it's almost, uh, it's, it's, it's almost too obvious in some ways, but it, I mean, obviously Finland is already in NATO, which as far as from an actual conflict perspective is somewhat more dangerous. However, Sweden does have a much larger military industrial complex than Finland. I would think the most cynical um, fact is that, like, the, the, the most cynical people inside the Kremlin are probably hoping for, you know, a piece of salad or a piece of deep fried bacon to be put into the Quran and burnt in Sweden, you know, during this entire process. I'm not saying that, like, Lavrov, you know, thinking, talking about putting bacon in a Quran and burning it is a real factor, but it is a little bit comical in, in thinking that how much that benefits Russia in terms of, you know, on one hand, the entire Muslim world supports Russia because, hey, well, Russia has these anti-discriminatory laws that you cannot inflame, you know, religious hatred, which, of course, protects um, the Muslims from having their sacred object, and, of course, protects Orthodox Christians as well from blasphemy, such as those pussy riot uh, women dancing in the Christ to, you know, Christ to Save the Cathedral in the middle of Moscow. So these laws kind of work in a way to protect, I guess, every party in the Russian Federation. But, oh, that burning of the Quran in Sweden really sets, um, sets Turkey, you know, on, a, on on edge, especially given Erdogan has just won the election. So, in fact, he still has to kind of give off this air of, like, I have been I've been elected to represent the people, and can I really dip out of this, this, you know, can I really let this slide? Because he's, before he's criticized Sweden and Sweden now, I believe he has, I think it was a, a week ago, he released a video where, again, he... Um, heavily criticized Sweden and the authorities for not taking action against this particular Swedish nationalist and what he was doing outside of the embassy. I, I just think it's really bizarre. If not, you know, it does benefit Russia greatly. Uh, nevertheless, uh, Putin, of course, traveling to uh, Dagestan to celebrate, um, you know, celebrate unity, I suppose. That's what the main message was and holding the Quran and all of that. That's a very interesting PR. I'm not sure who came up with that. Definitely not him because they're bent. And notice Putin is very careful since COVID. Putin has been incredibly careful of quarantine measures. Like any journalist who actually gets to meet Putin in person needs to spend at least, I believe, at least a few days, if not weeks in quarantine in Moscow before they're actually allowed an audience in order to participate in any any sort of photo shoots and things of that nature. So the quarantine measures were quite harsh. To actually see Putin amongst the crowd in Derbent and Dagestan, I don't, I'm not sure, maybe the Prigozhin coup mutiny kind of uh, forced them to kind of say, well, you know, screw it, let's just enjoy life, let's just hang out with, the, with my people, which is pretty awesome. You know, you shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't be too afraid of all these various diseases going around. But nevertheless, um, interesting public relations move there. I'm not necessarily the biggest fan of it, but I'm sure it wasn't even Putin's idea to go specifically to Derbent, Dagestan, a country which hasn't been relevant in Russian politics for the last, um, I mean, probably since Khabib Nurmagomedov uh, left the UFC. 
So let's just say Dagestan, it's not <laughs> Chechnya. So there really isn't much there. Like if, if he went to Grozny for Chechnya, then I would be like, okay, well, this makes sense because the World of National Guard, the Chechens, even though they were filming TikToks and driving on their trucks and they got stuck in traffic and maybe they went through, you know, they just, they never got to Wagner. So they never got, there was never a showdown. And somehow they arrived in Moscow, and never met Wagner on the way. Nevertheless, they still remain loyal to the National Guard, to uh, Zolotov, to the Russian Federation. And in fact, you know, they, they kept their word. So I respect Chechens, but nevertheless, Putin showing up in Dagestan, very random. Never, you know, it happened. Some people, of course, those who believe that Putin has many doubles, they're probably like, hey, he just sent one of his doubles to Dagestan to hang out with the boys. But fair enough, that's probably not it. And that's, uh, yeah, I think it's just, uh, remember we did say in live stream, Conrad, that this mutiny was such a big deal that there is like a before and there's an after like it's gonna sh it shook so many things up in russia and i guess religiously i think religiously the church is a really skeptical now i think that here's the take which i haven't given before but i'm gonna give it now in just a brief 20 seconds so the russian church has faced a lot of strife obviously from as we can see in ukraine correct conrad like all the schisms etc the fact that the anufri is essentially questioning whether or not he should break off into autocephaly just to keep the church alive in ukraine to prevent it from falling into schism or getting completely destroyed by the ukrainian persecuting government and the fact that the russian church wasn't giving given any warning that the SMO was about to start and that everything was about to get lit is probably one of the biggest reasons. I think Patriarch Kirill, you know, he's, he's, they're never going to admit it personally, but I think some of the bishops in Russia and some of the Archimandrites and the leaders of the Russian church are very triggered at what's happening. They're just not liking it. They're not liking the fact that they're not being told any of the Kremlin plans about what's going on. I don't think they like the fact that this guy drove all the way to Moscow and that the bishops had to make a public statement that, that, that everybody has to play to pray to Putin, uh, pray, pray, sorry, pray for Putin, pray for his safety and pray for the safety of the country and essentially making it out as if there's some sort of like Polish, you know, it's like 1612 is happening again. There's going to be an occupation of the Kremlin and there's going to be a new, uh, you know, Saint Hermogenes moment. In fact, it never came to that, but the church was very stressed and it remains in this stressed state. And the question arises, well, notice the goals in all these press conferences. It's never about the pers pers persecution. Unfortunately, that's not never mentioned. When in fact it could be one of the leading reasons why Russia even wins the war is the fact that it embraces its Orthodox identity and actually pushes that as you know puts that up on their flags. We've seen volunteers and people privately buying these massive flags of Christ's you know Christ's face on it and you know having icons at the front lines. But these are all private ventures. I don't think. I mean, yes, there are priests involved officially with the Ministry of Defense, but it needs to be embraced a bit a bit fuller. I think, and the church needs to be given some some heads up, especially when big moves are about to be made, or if you're going to run a PSYOP of Prigozhin, at least, you know, don't make the bishops look silly here, because they're going to make public statements in the first day in order to calm down, especially if it's happening on a Saturday, right, during Lent. You know, it's, there's just all these considerations here, but and I think the church has been a little bit disrespected the last year and a half, and I'm not even going to mention the fact that the COVID lockdown stopped people from going to church, and all the, you know, that that's a whole different story. But the last three, you can say the last three and a half years, now that we're in, we, we are in July, has really put a lot of pressure on the church, and it's even worse in Ukraine, of course, Metropolitan Onufri and all the people under him, so, hey, it's not, it's not very, uh, it's not very easy for us, but we, yeah, we do need prayers. No, it's very true. And as far as, I mean, look, let's look at the person who's, we can't necessarily get the political opinion of the church. The church kind of avoids putting those out for obvious reasons. You know, it's the church. But who's the political figure, a relevant person that you could say is the most directly 
connected to like monks and bishops and stuff. It's probably Igor Girkin, Strelkov. And what's his position? He's starting the Angry Patriots Club and has been like the most vocal critic of everybody. So if that tells you anything about what direction it needs to go, I think we need to be, you know, the Russian military of defense needs to be priest and prophecy maxing, not Muslim diplomacy maxing right now. Let's put it that way. Because we know that at this point that Putin wanted this to be like a two week long thing. Maybe he was prepared for a month or two. Maybe he was prepared to go into the summer of last year. But what it's turned into now, of course, which has been sustainable, in my opinion, thanks solely to the bravery and skill of the actual troops on the ground, including, of course, those in the Wagner PMC, that they've been able to maintain, you know, the banana of doom or whatever for this long, because it seems that the people at the top were really more prepared to do something like a like a two week a two week in and out job and Zelensky of course is still talking about how for negotiations he needs assurances about uh Crimea and Donbass being returned to Ukraine so that kind of shows us where we're at with that I don't know who I don't know who thinks that there's still maybe that's him playing hardball because he thinks after the coup negotiations are about to come to the fore but yeah it seems that with that and then the whole Poland Belarus situation, I don't see the West backing down at all, really. Yeah, that's right. Um I think the West is essentially is bolstered by the fact that it just witnessed this mutiny. I don't think even though there were claims that hey Prigozhin might have worked with the CIA and might have received all this money, excuse me, he received over two billion dollars. We just discussed this one billion for the nutrition and the food which Prigozhin provided to the Russian army. Oh yeah, because right Prigozhin was the sole supplier of nutrition and the food supplies for the Russian military so he had all these various business deals with the and of course he's the guy who runs the the troll farms in st petersburg which are getting dismantled at the moment by the way they're getting uh probably probably not completely dismantled they'll probably be appropriated by some other businessman or someone else will buy those assets and run them again but Prigozhin does run all these industries for the for the for russia and he's so involved with russia how could you claim that you know, I mean, not 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 you, Conrad, but people online, journalists, and essentially claiming that he he could have received Western aid. Do you think Russian FSB and Russian uh, foreign, uh, you know, foreign intelligence doesn't necessarily check for these connections, especially amongst like such influential figures such as Prigozhin? I'm pretty sure they're keeping an eye out on him. So it's similar claims to like I don't know when they were claiming Igor Strelkov between oh, you know after 2014 when he became really uh, critical of you know, of of the Russian leadership without getting too political. People were saying, well, this guy must be brought off, right? He must be bought off by the CIA or something. It's like, that's just the cop-out essentially for really bad domestic policy or really bad political administration within your own nation. So Prigozhin and him and himself, he's a, he's a creature of the Kremlin. Prigozhin is not, yeah, he is... Yeah, he has. He is an independent manager, and he actually has insane skills, like his skill level, to actually manage multiple companies and corporations. Actually, work with staff and his human resource capacity. Like he's he's an actual really good HR manager. I don't know how this guy functions. Like to be honest, um, probably on the cocaine that they found in his apartment in Petersburg, alongside cash and the fake passports. But nevertheless, similar to the Zelensky, by the way, similar heritage as well. But let's keep in mind, um, Prigozhin is a Frankenstein's monster created by the same people who ran Russia since the 90s, so this post-Soviet, you can call it the uh, uh, Noviopia or whatever, you know, is, re is referred to this this new ruling class, right? Which Putin is a part of, but Putin is kind of outside of it in the, in the fact that he doesn't belong to, he's not of the same ethnicity as a lot of these oligarchs, he's not, he's a little bit different, and in fact, he's probably is a bit of an outsider, which is why he surprised everybody when Putin took power. I think Putin still has some of that independence in him, and we mentioned strong leaders at the beginning, figures of authority. Putin does still have that 
sleek independence which somebody like Zolotov or Shoigu may not have, or even a Surovikin who are, you know, there's a lot of talk about Surovikin actually getting arrested. And well, you have to understand Surovikin is, we speak about this on the AFR episode, so I'm not going to get into uh, him too deeply, but Surovikin is deeply tied into the current establishment. He's not an outside general. He's very much part of the boys. Okay. So um, as great as he may be, or as, you know, well, I guess you just have to listen to the AFR episode for the full the full deal but nevertheless Prigozhin is a Frankenstein's monster created by Russia he is not a CIA project he's not a yes so if this whole thing was a PSYOP it was a PSYOP with the consent of the highest authority both in Belarus possibly and both in Russia but to call it a PSYOP and to call all those people who died in the helicopters and the planes uh, just simply victims of a PSYOP I mean that's very cold-blooded but worse things have happened we've seen I mean the American government literally PSYOPed a 9-11 they killed thousands of people so the fact that Russia can't simply do, you know, the Russian government, which started the SMO and kind of fiddled the, you know, with the MOD and messed that entire thing up. So many troops died in that initial assault, right? Gostomel Airport, was uh, was that part of, was that a PSYOP? No, that was an actual screw up by the MOD, killed all his Vodovay troops, as well as even brave Chechen uh, fighters at Gostomel. So we have to keep in mind, the mistakes do happen. So if this was an entire PSYOP, we have to keep in mind, it was the top people who were in charge, not random Frankenstein's monsters such as Prigozhin. When you say 9-11, the U.S. government definitely knew about it, but I think they rather let another government uh, do that one, you know? <laughs> I think we know what we're talking about there, mm -hmm. but yeah, unless unless you have anything to say maybe about the Chisinau airport, I think we can probably start to wrap this up. I don't know much about that. I saw reports that two were, it, it definitely happened, two were killed. Maya Sandu, the head of Moldova, said that you know, did reported those casualties, and then it was randomly reported, I don't think with any evidence that the person was somehow involved with Wagner, so that was a bit of a strange situation. I, we're obviously always watching Moldova, Transnistria, that whole situation, but that, that was a weird, weird situation. Yeah, I think the, the fact that some of, the, some of the journalists in Moldova reported that, you know, oh, these two people armed at the airport, they're potentially ex-Wagner uh, mercenaries, I think that's kind of like maybe conflating recent news that happened in Eastern Europe, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Belarus, with the reality on the ground. I think that's a bit of a stretch. Nevertheless, it does show you, you reap what you sow, right? You may, and of course, this is the big, I guess the big, the, the moral of the story of the entire episode is you reap what you sow, you reap what you sow in France, in Russia, you know, you build up PMC Wagner. Remember all these months, Conrad, of 2023, who have we been hearing about the most? It's Wagner, Wagner, this, Wagner, that. It's almost as if nobody else is fighting in the Ukraine except Wagner. We didn't hear about the Cossacks, we didn't hear about Donbass, we didn't hear about the Donetsk, Lugansk volunteers. All we hear about is Wagner and some Chechen TikTokers. So it's like, you if you build up this particular golem, you're going to have to slay it in the end or disenchant it in some sort of capacity. But hey, nevertheless, uh, you rape what you sow. Wagner, the, a lot of the, you know, you can say Wagner technically committed a crime and now even Moldovan journalists are basically associating armed criminals with Wagner mercenaries. It's just kind of natural. It just rolls off the tongue. So I think very possibly it's just some sort of PTSD, um, some Stockholm syndrome over there. Going, you know. Nevertheless, if they were Wagnerites, it would possibly, you know, the story may be propelled into some sort of um, Moldova Transnistria issues, right? There could be some sort of accusations thrown around, but we'll see how it develops. And if the story dies down, then it's just a, um, I guess it's a, a study in psychology and uh, how mass media affects the mind. Well, I think the reap what you sow thing is very accurate. In France, you reap what you sow with mass immigration, diversity. In in Ukraine and Russia, you reap what you sow with building up that, that golem. In the Balkans, you reap what you sow, sowing together these monstrous multi-ethnic nations. 
And I mean, and in Moldova, I think they may be about to reap what they're going to sow because they're banning all these parties that are very popular. Because you know, being a pro, being pro-Russian in Moldova is not the same as being pro-Russian in you know eighty percent of Ukraine. The, there's very popular parties. There's very large groups of people against this war. There's very a lot of people against globalism in general. And right now, obviously, Moldova has a globalist, you know, kind of EU-friendly, NATO-friendly government. But that's gonna eventually there will be elections, and we could see. Moldova become kind of what Russia originally wanted. Like Moldova was always also supposed to be in the same sphere as Ukraine, which is just an independent country in, with a Russian sphere of influence president. So we may see that come back in Moldova and who knows what that'll lead to with the Transnistria thing. But with all of that, Dimitri mentioned it before, Ether Hour episode 10 to hear our full hour plus long take on the Wagner coup. We go really deep. We talk about it in this episode a bit, of course, but that's where you get our full take, you know, so don't roast us for not going deep enough on here in the comments until you've listened to that episode. So be sure to do that on worldwarnow.substack.com. It'll all be linked below, whether you're on Substack or YouTube in the description. Whether you're on Substack or YouTube, please like this video. It helps us out a lot. If you can't like on Substack, just quickly download the app, make an account. It's super easy, and there's a lot of great content on here as well. All of our articles are really only on Substack, so you'll want to check us out. Subscribe on YouTube. Uh, follow us on Telegram, World War Now, Tele, T-E-L-E. We're really keeping up with the French civil race war and like all the other stuff going on. We uh, follow me on Twitter, GnomeRad. Follow Dimitri on Twitter, OCanonist. And of course, follow the World War Now Twitter, World War Now underscore. Some good things coming on there. We should have our blue check soon. So that's always fun. And yeah, worldwarnow.substack.com. Like I said, leave us a comment. And with all of that, Dimitri, send us off. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you. Uh, God bless any fathers listening uh, of, of the Orthodox Church. We do appreciate your support and uh, forgive us for making any mistakes or even, uh, you know, maybe misquoting or misstating anything. We do, of course, provide our personal opinion on certain matters. So if mistakes are made, we usually correct ourselves on the following episode. But nevertheless, leave us your feedback, your comments. We always take that stuff on board. And uh, we do appreciate any support you guys give. Of course, the primary support at the moment you could provide us would be subscribing to the Substack which it's not just financial support at this time. Essentially, you're purchasing the premium content, the AFR, the AFR Hour episodes, the articles, which are constantly being released and researched. The articles are very thoroughly researched with direct links to all the sources. And it, there's definitely a lot of content coming up, which you know we're drafting and we're going to release it very carefully because a lot of the stuff is incredibly exclusive and it's just a matter of um, when you know, when we will release it for what kind of audience there there are. There's a lot of considerations coming into there, but we do appreciate all your support and thank you fellow listeners and, you know, stay tuned to the, uh, to the news and we will, you know, keep you informed as well if you follow us on our social media. So yeah, definitely see you guys sometime this week again. God bless y'all.